Good morning once again. Uh, so great to see you uh, who are here with us and uh, so thankful that uh, you've joined us online as well. We are in the fourth week of a series called The Power of Weakness. And so far we've seen how God does amazing things in some of those uh, circumstances in life that we would rather avoid, uh, like uh, suffering or conflict or stress. And today we want to see how God works in the midst of failure. Um, you know, there were people, as we're going to see in our passage today in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, there were people who thought that Paul was a failure. And then there were times when Paul knew that he had failed. And yet, as it turns out, God can work in both of those situations. And so I want you to listen as we read 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we're competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that came through death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? God bless the reading of his word. My kids used to give me a hard time about the fact that unlike them, I never went to preschool or kindergarten. They took it to be a major deficiency in my education. And they were always surprised that I could still say my ABCs and knew how to sit crisscross applesauce, uh, even though I'd never been to to preschool. Now, I don't even know if preschool existed in my hometown uh, in the 1960s, to be honest with you. I know that uh, where I lived, kindergarten was something that you had to pay for, and my parents chose not to. And so let's just say that when little Larry entered first grade, uh, he was a little bit behind the curve. You know, I I don't know about you and your memories. It's, It's funny what I remember about those days. One of the things I remember about being a first grader was that every time a kid lost a tooth in my classroom, they got to paste a cardboard tooth on a poster with their name on it up on the wall. Well, I didn't lose a tooth until second grade, and so my poster was empty. But a lot of those little show-offs had had posters filled with teeth, you know? And and, and I I was like, what's wrong with my mouth? You know, why why am I such a failure? But it gets worse. One of the things that stands out from that first grade year for me was uh, something that I had not experienced up to that point in my life, and that was something called a report card. 
Now, uh, a lot of us are used to uh, report cards with, with five grades, right? A, B, C, D, and F. But for some reason, the report cards in my classroom, uh, th there were three options. There was a C, which sounds bad, but it's actually commendable. And then there was a G, which stood for good. And then there was the dreaded N, which stood for needs improvement. My whole first grade year, I did not get one commendable. It was mostly G's, supposedly good, but sounded bad to me. And then there were a handful of N's in the area of my handwriting. So when little Larry trudged home every six weeks with his report card, he felt like a failure. Of all the things that I've forgotten about the year 1967, that memory still lingers. I don't know if you have memories like this, but, but the truth is that life never stops handing out grades. It didn't stop for me. It hasn't stopped for you either, has it? Life never stops grading you. How fast can you run a mile? How many pull-ups can you do without kicking off the ground? Did, did someone ask you to Sadie Hawkins? Did someone ask you to homecoming? What's your SAT score? Oh, is that all? Will you get into the college of your choosing? Will you get into the job of your choosing? By the way, what do those numbers mean on your performance review? Or worse, on your performance improvement plan? What grade would your spouse or kids give you for how present you've been this last year? Commendable? Good? Needs improvement. Can anybody here relate? Have you ever trudged home with a lackluster report card, feeling like a failure, deserved or undeserved or somewhere in between? Well, if you've ever felt that shame of not measuring up, what I want us to see this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is what I want to call a new perspective on failure, a new perspective on Failure. In fact, I think Paul deals with two kinds of failure. Um, and the first one is, uh, and the first question that I want us to look at, and we'll spend a good bit of time on it, is what does the gospel say about apparent failure? Apparent failure is when others look at us and what we do and deem it a failure. Right? Apparent failure is when we're not certain if what we are doing is actually successful and worthwhile and pleasing to God. Sometimes it happens when someone else diminishes our work or calling. Sometimes it comes when we question our worth or our calling. Now, ironically, this is what was happening to the Apostle Paul uh, from some in the church at Corinth. Now, get this. Paul actually planted the church in Corinth. And yet he was being deeply criticized by others as a substandard Christian leader. Other people had questions about Paul's credentials. This becomes clear in the first verse. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? In other words, do I have to brag on myself? And then he says, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? As we try to place together 
the, the, the writings of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and, 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 and the book of Acts, what seems most clear to me, the theory that seems most clear is that, is that after Paul would leave Corinth, uh, there would be these leaders that would come in, and they were very proud of themselves. They were very outwardly impressive. In fact, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 calls them super apostles. Uh, that's kind of how, you know, these are, they, they, they thought of themselves as superhero, Marvel uh, apostles, and they infiltrated the church at Corinth. And these uh, men advertised themselves as being everything that Paul was not. They were wealthy, Paul was poor. They were eloquent. Paul was apparently not an impressive public speaker. They were established. Paul traveled place to place to place without a true home anywhere. Likely these super apostles had very impressive letters of recommendation that had been written about them. You know, in the Roman Empire, when you traveled, there wasn't a Motel 6 here and a, a Holiday Inn Express there. And if you were going to, you know, uh, be sheltered from the weather, you, you were going to have to ask a stranger to take you in. And so you would bring these letters. And the letters would say, yeah, this is not just a, a random person. This is Larry. I know him. And, and uh, you can trust him not to, uh, to steal from you if you take him into your home. And so letters of recommendation were, were very common. And uh, uh, it turns out uh, these super apostles had their own letters. Well, Paul plants this church, uh, but when Paul's not there, some of the super apostles are saying, hey, by the way, has anybody ever seen a, a letter of recommendation for Paul? I mean, how do we know that he's really qualified to be a missionary and church planner? Man, that had to hurt. You know, one of the things about human evaluation of us is that it's, it's always skewed, isn't it? People don't see the whole story, and, and their vision is not 2020 when it comes to us anyway. And so what happens is sometimes we may really be flourishing, but they don't actually see the flourishing part. Or, on the other hand, we may be failing, but on the surface we're managing to make things look like we're holding it together. To many in Corinth, Paul looked like a failure. He didn't fit the part of what they thought an apostle should be. And so they began to, to, to give him a bad report card. They, they began to give him a needs improvement. They, they were calling into question his whole ministry. And so Paul does something very interesting in verse 2. He says, you, wanna, you want a letter? Okay. Okay, I'll give you a letter. You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by, by everyone. Isn't that great? Corinth, church, you are our letter. The message says you're all the endorsement we need. Your lives are imprinted on our hearts. Our gospel is imprinted on your hearts. You're the letter. It gets even better in verse 3. You're a letter from Christ. And the ink used is the Holy Spirit. In other words, if Paul were to be asked about his apparent failure in Corinth, you know what he would say? He would say, God is the one who determines true success. God is the one who writes the letter. <laughs> God is the one who sees all and knows all. God is the one who is accomplishing his work in us and through us. I think there's something so freeing about this. Your life, my life, will not always measure up to our critics. Your life, my life, will not always fit everybody's definition of what success looks like. But Christ writes through the indelible ink of the Holy Spirit, and that letter lasts. 
You know, I think the, the first book I ever received as a gift uh, was from my church. It was from a man uh, who led a ministry for boys at my church. Uh, the ministry was called Royal Ambassadors, and uh, the man's name was Dennis Lang. And I, I won a prize, and I don't even remember what for. I think it was attendance. I was always really good at that. Uh, or, or it may have been memorizing scripture. But anyway, I do remember the book. It was kind of a little paperback, thin paperback, salmon colored on the background. And the title of the book was How Great Men Met Christ. And I love that book. I remember reading about a guy that uh, probably even most church historians could not pick out of a lineup. His name was Edward Kimball. He was not a theologian, he was not a preacher. He really wasn't a church leader of, of any kind. What he was was a very committed uh, Sunday school teacher. Uh, he taught teenage boys at the Mount Vernon Congregational Church and, uh, in Boston. And there was a teenage boy named Dwight. He'd moved to Boston uh, to work at his uncle's shoe store. And his uncle says, okay, you can work at my shoe store under one condition, and that is that you go to church. And uh, so Dwight said, wanted a job, and he said, okay, uncle, I'll go to church. But, but Dwight wasn't into church, okay? Uh, in fact, his plan for his life at the time, he, he would say later, was to enjoy all the pleasures that life had to offer, and then at the very end of his life, right before he died, to get saved. That was his plan. Um, well, it turns out that Dwight ends up in... Edward Kimball's Sunday school class. And Edward Kimball had a burden for Dwight. And he encouraged Dwight to attend church regularly. He actually encouraged uh, Dwight to read his Bible, something that which he had never done before. And he says at the beginning, Dwight said he could barely understand a word of the Bible. Uh, but, but Edward Kimball was teaching him and encouraging him. And then one April day, 1855, Edward Kimball comes to Dwight's shoe store, has a conversation with Dwight, and leads him to faith in Jesus Christ. Dwight said later of that experience, his salvation experience, he said, I woke up the next day in a new world. The next morning, the sun shone brighter, the birds sang sweeter. It was the most delicious joy I had ever known. Dwight L. Moody, D.L. Moody, went on to become an internationally known preacher and evangelist. He was Billy Graham before Billy Graham uh, in the second half of the 19th century. I mean, he, he was likely the most well-known, famous Christian of his day. But before God would use D.L. Moody to share Christ with hundreds of thousands of people, God used Edward Kimball to write a letter of Christ through the ink of the Holy Spirit on the soul of a teenage shoe salesman. The Christian world would all say that D.L. Moody was a success, and he was. But Dwight L. Moody would say that Edward Kimball was a success because Edward Kimball wrote the gospel on his heart. You know, all my life, before I was a pastor, since I've become a pastor, I've heard people say variations of this sentence, don't ask me, I'm just a lay person. But if Jesus is the one who moves in you and in me, if Jesus is the one that writes letters through the power of the Holy Spirit, then friends, it doesn't matter if you're the internationally known evangelist or the unknown Sunday school teacher, does it? All that matters is that Jesus is writing a letter through you. So what if we banished all talk of I'm just a? What if we didn't begin any sentence with I'm just a when it comes to our faith in Jesus? 
What if we said instead, as we sang a moment ago, I am who you say I am. And I will do what you called me to do for your glory. The church in Corinth was Paul's letter. D.L. Moody was Edward Kimball's letter. Who's your letter? I'll share another story, this one a lot more recent. Uh, A scholar named Andrew Root has written about a, a letter that he received from an elementary school teacher named Sharon. And the letter, Sharon wrote this. She said, I had a powerful experience this week, and I'm not sure what to make of it. Tuesday, as I was lining up my class to return from recess, I noticed that Janny was not in line. So I went looking for her, and I found her curled up on the slide, and she was crying. Now, I knew that Janny's dad had just moved out of the family house. I knew that her parents were thinking the marriage was coming to a fast end. And so I waved to my student teacher. I asked my student teacher to take the class inside. And I sat at the bottom of the slide and invited Janny to come out. I said, Janny, what are you doing hiding? And Janny just started to cry. Sharon said, when I saw her tears, my heart broke. She said, I felt called to her. In some way, she said, like Jesus was calling to me. But it was weird because as much as I felt Jesus calling me to share in Janie's sadness, I knew Jesus to be with me. Jesus was joining me even. And this sounds crazy, she said, but I felt like Jesus was acting through me. All of a sudden, I felt calm. It was like in the smallest way, but in a real way, I was born for this little moment. So I just sat with Janie. I assured her I wouldn't leave her. I told her that anytime she wanted, we can talk. And I told her I understood how hard this was, but that she wasn't alone. She said, Janie's eyes filled with tears. And her eyes said more than I could understand. And I had this powerful sense that my words, my presence mattered. I took her by the hand and we walked back to the classroom. And I know somehow that this was the most important day of my teaching career. Here, in a hidden moment on a playground, Sharon has the most important day of her career. Why? Because Jesus was with her. Jesus was working through her. Jesus was writing a letter on Janie's heart. This is what true fulfillment is about. Paul says that when it comes to apparent failure, only God knows true success. Friends, unfortunately, there's another kind of failure, isn't it? And this kind of failure is not up for debate. And that's true failure. That's when life gives us a failing grade and needs improvement that we richly deserve. And so the second question I want to ask is, is, what does the gospel say? What can the gospel say about true failure? You see, sometimes when someone starts talking about what Jesus is doing in and through them, maybe they're getting a little full of themselves. Hey, look at me. Look at all I'm doing for Jesus. What would Jesus do without me, you know? And, and, uh, and so Paul was very quick to point out in verse 5 that uh, his competence as a Christian leader does not come from himself. His competence comes from God. If, if anything is praiseworthy, it comes from God. But still, Paul says in verse 6 that God has enlisted him to be a minister of a new covenant. What does that mean, a new covenant minister? Well, you might say it this way. When it comes to the old covenant, all of us have failed. The old covenant 
was, was essentially the one that God made with Moses. In the book of Exodus, God wanted us to know who he is, his holiness. God wanted us to know how he had designed us to live, and so God gave us uh, the law. The old covenant was a covenant largely of the law. The old covenant was typified by the Ten Commandments. And the old covenant teaches that failure to keep the law ends in death. And we regularly fail to keep the law. The Ten Commandments say we should worship one God. But as John Calvin says, our our heart is a factory of idols. There's so many idols. We worship so many other things than God. We worship comfort, sex. We worship popularity and pride. Uh, So many things. The Ten Commandments tell us to stay faithful to our spouses, but our our hearts are filled with selfishness and lust. The Ten Commandments tell us not to to kill or to steal or to lie or to envy. And even when we've stopped short of theft or murder, there is a murderous anger in our hearts. There is envy in our hearts. There are all these little white lies and not so little lies that we tell. We fail to keep the Sabbath, Sabbath rest of God. We have this terrible tendency to throw God's name around and use it in vain. We all fail. That's what the old covenant teaches us. That's what the law of God teaches us. But I want you to watch this fascinating thing that happens in verse 6. You see, long after the days of Moses, God began to give these holy dreams to prophets like the prophet Jeremiah. And it was a dream not of the old covenant, but a dream of a brand new covenant. And Jesus came by his death on the cross and resurrection to uh, fulfill that new covenant. So look at verse 6. Verse 6 says that God has made us ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. I think this verse is an enormously important verse. And it's a verse that that is kind of confusing, let's be honest. And so uh, what I want to do is I want to zero in on these uh, two words uh, that we see in yellow, letter and Spirit. Covenant of letter and a covenant of Spirit. When you see the word letter, Think Old Covenant, think Ten Commandments. When you see the word Spirit, capital S, think Holy Spirit. Think the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. When you see the word letter, think of a terrible diagnosis of a terminal disease. The letter exposes the terminal disease of sin in our heart that leads to death. When you think of the word Spirit, Think of the life-giving medicine that cures our sickness. Paul says the letter kills. The letter exposes our sin. The letter also exposes the ways in which we try to use the law to save ourselves. This is what the Pharisees did. Jesus said the Pharisees, the outside of the cup, the external life that everybody else sees, it's pristine. But the inside of the cup is filthy. The inner life The heart is filled with sin. That's why Jesus in Matthew 23 called those Pharisees whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but there was death on the inside. The letter kills, the letter exposes our sin and the death that comes with it. And so maybe you're looking at it and you're going, oh, well, the letter's no good, right? The letter, the law, that's bad. And, and, And Paul would say, absolutely not. The law is holy. 
Paul would say that, that when, when Moses brought down the tablets, right, there, there was a kind of glory in all that that Israel had never seen before. There was such glory, you may remember, that for a time, it was transitory, as Paul says, but for a time, Moses' face was glowing. That's how much glory there was. But the new covenant, Paul says, is infinitely more glorious than the old covenant. The letter of the law exposes our sin. It kills off our pride. It kills off our attempts to save ourselves or make ourselves look good through legalism. The letter of the law proves, as Ephesians 2 says, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. But the same Holy Spirit who raised Christ from the dead brings us salvation and healing that makes us come alive. In other words, in the weakness, in the midst of the weakness of true failure, guess what? God is the one who reverses failure. God is the one who brings life out of the empty tomb, right? God is the one who brings life out of death. Now listen, I know we are wading through some deep theology here, okay? But please don't check out. I want you to know why I think this is so crucial, I think it's crucial because all of us carry around a nagging sense of real failure in our lives. All of us know what Paul says, right? That we have have sinned and we've fallen short of God's glory. All of us deal with shame. And as bad as it feels for the law to uh, basically confirm our sin, that diagnosis of the law is necessary. Because we have to have a diagnosis first before we can cry out for healing. We need the law to expose our sin, in other words, so that we will cry out to God for, his, for the, the blood of Christ to cleanse us, for the Holy Spirit to fill us. I heard about this old Lutheran seminary professor, and he used to preach this way. He would say, I would start off on my sermon, and I would just hold up the law. I would hold up the law like a mirror. Until, he said, people began to see the law convicting them. And as soon as I felt like the law was convicting them of their sin, I would put down the law and I would pick up the gospel. And I would say, good news, there's forgiveness. Good news, there's grace. Good news, there's healing. The letter kills. The spirit gives life. His sermons were death and then resurrection. I think that's beautiful. Now, some of us grew up with sermons that were just all law, right? It was just the, the mirror the whole time, and it was, you people are worthless now. Go have a good day. Uh, but, uh, but, but, but Paul says, don't forget the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who gives life. I don't know about you. I need that every day. I need the x-ray to show me my sin so that I can confess it. And I need Dr. Jesus to give me the grace that brings forgiveness and healing. Every day I need to hear Jesus say, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven. Every day I need to hear the gospel message, by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Every day when I live under the ministry of condemnation, as Paul talks about at the Old Covenant, I need to hear Jesus say, there is therefore now No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the power of God in the midst of our failures. In the death of our best intentions, there's an empty tomb. In our hidden acts of service, Jesus writes a letter with Holy Spirit ink. 
You know, on Monday of this last week, we celebrated the life of, of Jean Tuckness. Uh, Jean uh, used to sit right there, and it was uh, his job to, to kind of help protect me as part of our emergency response team, which was such a, a humbling thing for me, week after week, month after month, year after year. One of my favorite things about Jean, as I shared in this in, in, on Monday, was his tender heart. You know, sometimes preachers preach a sermon, and, and afterwards people say, oh, I wish my brother-in-law had been here, you know. He really needed that sermon, right? But Gene, it was always like, I, I needed that sermon. I needed that song. I needed that worship. John Hewlett shared a, a time uh, when Gene came up to him after a worship service. And we'd sung a song that's probably familiar to many of you. It's, it's called Calvary Covers It All. And Gene had been so moved by that song and by the underlying truth of that song, of all Christ has done to forgive us of all of our failures and to write his gospel in our hearts John said, Gene had tears in his eyes, and he says, it's amazing, John, it's amazing. The gospel is amazing. What Christ did on the cross really does cover all my sins. It covers it all. Isn't that beautiful? All of us fear failure, don't we? We fear the shame of not measuring up. We fear the shame of sin. But Jesus says, fear not. Fear not, I've covered it all. Fear not, I've given you the Holy Spirit. Fear not, I'm writing a letter on your life. Fear not, I came to earth to forgive you. Fear not, you're not saved by your deeds, you're saved by my precious blood. Fear not, I'm writing a letter in you, through you, for your joy and for God's glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, whether we dare admit it to another person or not, this theme hits all of us. It hits all of us so close to our hearts. Lord, sometimes we wonder, does anybody see does anybody know, does anybody care about our attempts to live faithfully? Is it all forgotten, deemed insignificant and unimportant? And then, Lord, sometimes we ask a different question. We ask, do you think they see? Do you think they know my sin, my flaws, my secrets? Oh, Lord. We thank you for the wonderful cross. We thank you for grace. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for the power of the spirit that gives life in the cemetery of our failure. And Lord, we thank you that what we do in you and through you is written indelibly through the power of the spirit and lasts eternally. So Lord, be strong in the midst of our failure, in the midst of our weakness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.